Well, good morning. Thank you. Good. Please have your Bibles handy. We're not going to be going anywhere particular today as we are in the middle of a topical series as it relates to Christians and the law. Uh, We are in part five now of this topical series. Next week we will, uh, in a manner of speaking, wrap up this series with the final and and in many ways the the, um, most important uh, element as it relates to the biblical obligations that we have under Christ. And for five weeks now, we've been talking about the relationship of Christians to the law. Uh, Of course, first we talked about the historical context, the historical setting. Then we got into the law as it relates to justification and found out that there's no relationship there with the exception of the fact that we are justified by faith and that thus uh, we are declared righteous, uh, satisfying the law not in ourselves, but Jesus Christ having satisfied the law in us unto salvation. And then we spent our time over the the last two weeks, this will be our third, um, I think that's right, uh, looking at how we relate to the law within the bounds of Christ. And we, we began seeing that we are not under the law, that that is what the scriptures uh, clearly state, Romans 6, 7, and 8, all of the book of Galatians, that we do not live beholden to the burdens of the law, beholden to the consequences of the law. We are called uh, unto something different, and that what we are called unto is to Christ. And then last week we spent our time talking about the shadow that the law is, the reality that the law is a shadow of Christ, that the law is intended not to be the definition of who God is, but rather a reflection of who God is. To that extent, we see in the law value in that we can go back to that Old Testament law, and many of those Old Testament laws are indeed reflective of the character of God and reflective of Christ. And other elements of the Old Testament law, while they are uh, not, uh, there may be civil and ceremonial elements that are not reflective of expectations, we're not bound by them by any way, shape, or form, and yet they reflect principles about the nature and the character of God uh, that are excessively beneficial to us as we understand uh, who God is and what He expects of us as we seek to be conformed to the image of Christ. We even saw, as we reiterated uh, all but one of the Ten Commandments uh, quite literally in the New Testament, and saw how the, that, that fifth commandment of, of or excuse me, the fourth commandment of the Sabbath relates to us as well. We even saw, as we related those things, how Christ took what was a legal standard, took what was a compulsion unto action, and drove it back to where God wanted it to be, and that being the heart. That if I hate a man in my heart, I've murdered him in my heart already. It's the same sin, just one of them is brought to a physical action, and the other one is not. That if I lust after a woman, I've I've committed adultery with her in my heart already. And elevating us to this place, this place of intent. And this is not necessarily different in one sense, from what God desired out of the law. We see in the law, we even talked last week about how all of the law, if we we funnel it down to its most action-based character, there's 613 laws that the Jews have identified. And those filter out of those 10 laws that we call the Ten Commandments, and then those filter up, as we see presented in the New Testament, to two laws. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and might, and love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, those two laws are clearly identifiable in the Old Testament. 
And yet what we do is as we see those two filter down to 10, filter down to 613, with each step, we're getting farther from heart intent and we're getting deeper into action. And when we keep our focus entirely upon the burdens and the expectations legally of actions, it has a tendency to draw us to a place of action outside of intent, to a place where the Pharisees and the Sadducees were, to a place where we are doing what we are doing out of pride and self-righteousness and judgmentalism rather than doing what we are doing out of a heart of love for God and a heart of love for others. And so we spend our, uh, spent time last week with this particular graphic um, that reflects the idea that the law of Moses was never meant by God to define his character and attributes, but rather to reflect his character and attributes. And we said that whether the law of Moses itself had ever existed or not, that would not have ever changed anything about the character of God. And we even looked at this uh, reality from Matthew, right? And, and the heightening of these commands. We pointed to the reality that the law was written to a nation, needed to accommodate a national functionality, but that Christianity is not this way. That the law was a shadow of something so much greater and fulfilled in Christ. And that only in this age could that possibly be realized in us because God has given to us of his spirit. Now, we also mentioned last week that by Christ's teaching and admonitions, the law boils down to those two precepts. And that's what I'd like to talk about today. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the standard of the law of Christ. Coming down to that one ever-important word, love. Now, Love is a completely misunderstood word today, isn't it? And unfortunately, misunderstood love. I mean, misunderstood word. Love in the world is a very different thing than love as it's defined in the Word of God. Love is not a feeling, as the world would like to define, de define it today. Love is a choice. It's a decision. Love does not do what I want, or what I think other people might want, what I think won't anger them or offend them. Love does what is best for people, regardless of my own self-interest, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of my own feelings on the matter. I don't have the right to redefine this word or this concept. Love is not allowing someone to live a lie without correcting them. That's not love. Love is not violating a person's invalid uh, or, or violating the person, excuse me, violating a person's invalid feelings or validating a person's invalid feelings. Love is not taking advantage of someone. These things are not love. Love is not a feeling that is based on physical attraction. Now, all of those things can be a part of love as it's defined in the world, but that's not how the Bible defines love. When I love others as myself, when I conform to the biblical definition of love, of doing what is best for another, the object of my love, regardless of self-interest, regardless of circumstances, when I love God in that way, when I love my neighbor in that way, the Bible says I'm fulfilling the law. So I want to trace this concept deliberately today, going from point to point to understand what it means. 
and then driving home this point through biblical principles. Unfortunately, of course, there, there's far too much to hit at all as far as the, the biblical record. What I will hope and trust is that if we nail this principle down about what God wants of us, the, the idea of true love, biblical love, the, the first Corinthians definition of love, then the rest will come in time and circumstance as we read and study our Bibles together. And I'd like us to begin today in Romans chapter 13. In Romans chapter 13, verses 7 through 10, the Bible says this. Render therefore to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, and if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. The message that I preach today could, in, in many ways, have simply been a walkthrough of Romans 12, 13, and 14 because these concepts are taught there uh, so clearly, so plainly, and, and, and so comprehensively. In these chapters, Paul hits these concepts with all of his might. In Romans chapter 12, which we'll come to a little bit later, he calls for the church to serve and to love one another. In Romans 14, which we'll come to next week, he talks about the principles of the weaker brethren, calling upon each of us to be willing to bind the actions that we would take to the consciences of the weaker brethren and even to the conscience of an unbeliever as we get into 1 Corinthians 10. Whenever doing so would help them draw closer to God. And in between those two chapters, Romans 12 and Romans 14, we have Romans 13. The first thing that we see here is a call by Paul to submit to government authority. We skipped most of that. We saw just the tail end of that in verse 7. And every God-ordained authority. At the tail end of this discussion, we find the verse that we just read. And in this verse, Paul calls for us to owe no man anything but only to love one another. And he states that love is the fulfillment of the law. And then he goes on and he quotes the final five of the Ten Commandments. Recall last week, those final five commandments were the ones that we would relate to the relationship between man and man rather than the relationship between God and man. The first five are generally the love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and might. It's directly between me and God. The second five are loving my neighbor as myself. They relate from man to man. And Paul says that if you love your neighbor, you will, by default, fulfill the reflections of God's character that the law codified. I cannot both love my neighbor and commit adultery with his wife. Doesn't work that way. I cannot both love my neighbor and covet the things that he has. It does not work that way. I cannot both love my neighbor and kill my neighbor. It does not work that way. I cannot both love my neighbor and lie to my neighbor. It does not work that way. I can conjure up in my mind any number of reasons why certain of those things I might be able to justify, well, I'm doing this for this reason and that reason, therefore I'm loving someone, but I can't love my neighbor if I am offending him in such ways. So if I follow Christ, these things will well be in hand. 
And this is what we were talking about last week. It is the difference between seeing the thou shalt and the thou shalt not, placing myself back under the burden of do and don't do in that sense, and the reality that as I follow Christ, those things will fall into place. And this is that warning that we've given from the beginning. It is not difficult for a human to keep external laws while having a heart that is entirely far from God. There are entire religious systems that do a much better job than we do at keeping the external laws that the Old Testament lays in place, while simultaneously recognizing how very far their hearts are from God. This was the essence of Jesus's ministry as it related to the contention between himself and the scribes and the Pharisees. These scribes and the Pharisees did an extremely good job at keeping those 613 laws that they had identified in the Old Testament, but it didn't bring them one iota closer to the true and living God. And this is the New Testament call. We've talked before. We'll talk again. The New Testament call is not that we throw out the baby with the bathwater. The New Testament call is not the idea that, oh, I don't have to do it anymore. I'm not under the burden and the weight of of the consequences of this law anymore. Therefore, I'm just going to not do it. Well, it doesn't work that way, right? My children right now have to brush their teeth every day. And every day they're told, you go brush your teeth. Now there's coming a day when my children will no longer be under my direct authority. It would be silly for them to say, oh, I'm not under mom and dad's authority anymore. Good, I don't have to brush my teeth anymore. No, because brushing their teeth is good for them whether someone's telling them to do it or not. Whether they're going to get consequences for doing it or not. Whether they're under the burden of doing it, uh, an external burden or not, brushing their teeth is good for them. And that's what we talked about last week. The very reality that it, it doesn't necessarily mean just because we're not under the law that that shadow of the law does not highlight principles and precepts that are right and that are good. But what it means is that we have been elevated beyond that to a, a, a particular focal point, and that focal point is what's in your heart? Who are you actually following? So if I follow Christ, things will be well in hand. Now at this point, we've talked about this idea, love thy neighbor as thyself. And the question thus becomes, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Jesus gave a parable, and I've alluded to this already, But Jesus gave a parable called, which we often call the parable of the Good Samaritan. We find it in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And the Bible says this. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he, that would be Jesus, said unto him, the lawyer, what is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Looking for those particular people that he actually has to love so he can hate everyone else. And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He went around him, just let him lie there. 
And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to a host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three, the Levite, the priest, and the Samaritan, thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said unto him, Go and do thou likewise. We see this interaction. The startling nature of this, of course, just as we briefly summarize it, was how much the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other, right? And so this Jew is lying there and he is deeply wounded and his brethren, the most moral among them, the priest and the Levite, they walked by and they they just went right by him. But then a Samaritan, the one who is supposed to be his mortal enemy, the one who not only should walk by him, but should walk by him and say, good, glad he's there, is the one that bound him, is the one that had mercy on him. And so this man is asking, who is my neighbor? And Jesus' answer is, everyone that needs mercy along your way. Everyone that you come across. Everyone that you interact with. The Samaritan was the neighbor to the Jew, and the Jew was the neighbor to the Samaritan by virtue of the fact that the Samaritan had the capacity to help the Jew. Therefore, the Jew is his neighbor, the one that he needs to love, the one that needs his love. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Find the people that need your love and love them. So in this case, those that I interact with, they're my neighbor. The people that I am am interacting with at any given time, they're my neighbor. And the law is fulfilled in this one thing, right? Love my neighbor as myself. Well, let's begin to turn our attention to what this looks like practically. What does it mean to love God with all my heart? And what does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? And let's begin by loving God. Loving God through practical purity. The command in Scripture is to follow Christ, to love what God loves, to hate what God hates, enabled by His Spirit, who at the moment of the new birth indwells us, gives us a new name, gives us a new heart, a desire unto righteousness, compels us unto righteous living, and works out that righteousness in us as we submit to the Spirit of the living God. To this end, there are any number of lifestyles that are antithetical, that are in complete uh, opposition to the Christian life. And we see several lists of such in the Word of God. One such list is found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. And then he gives this list. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. We walk down this list The first several are are sexual sins by nature, adultery, sexual unfaithfulness, uh, uh, fornication, sexual promiscuity, uncleanness, sexual impurity, lasciviousness, uh, uh, driven by your desires and your lusts. 
idolatry, of course, placing anything above God in, in value or in loyalty, witchcraft, interaction with the spirit realm outside of God's ordained methods, hatred, hostility, variance, uh, being a hostile person, emulations, that's jealousy, wrath, that's, that, that's a rage and a, a unbridled anger, strife, causing divisions or being overly dramatic, seeking to cause problems where problems don't otherwise exist, seditions, uh, working to undermine others, not just authorities, but working to undermine others, heresies, having improper doctrine, envyings, uh, uh, living in envy or living in covetousness, murders, uh, going all the way back to hating a brother in my heart, but of course murder being the taking, the unlawful taking of a human life, drunkenness, uh, being uh, um, overcome by a um, a substance that I've put into my body and thus unable to control my own thoughts and actions. Revelings is a uh, inappropriate level of, of, um, of uh, partying or of levity. And all of these traits, as a mode or a man of living, manner of living, stand in direct opposition to the character of God. Now, we're going to talk about this list and the next list we'll address in just a moment a little bit more in a couple of weeks. When we get back into 1 Timothy, we're going to talk about these lists a little bit more. But, but at the end of this list, Paul says, They which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And as a sneak preview of what we're going to talk about, it's important to understand that that word do there is not that if you ever do one of these things, you're an unbeliever. But what it means is those whose lives are defined by these things, those who persist in these things, those who live as unto these things, you are not an inheritor of the kingdom of God. You are, un- you are one of the unrighteous, not one of the righteous. So when someone tells you that they're a believer, but they're living in this list, there's a fundamental problem, right? There's a fundamental problem with someone who, who says that they're a believer, but they are not walking according to Christ. So we do have, and again, we'll look at another list in a moment, we do have these these standards by which we can look and we can say those things are not Christ. And many of these things naturally are things which the Old Testament law uh, also codifies because the Old Testament law is a reflection of the character of God. Paul would give a similar list in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Once again, as a sneak preview, if you're a born-again believer, you are not one of the unrighteous. By, by biblical definition. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Once again, we see in this list fornication, idolatry, adultery, effeminism, homosexuality, theft, covetousness, drunkenness, excessive reveling or partying, reviling others, the idea there of, of castigating others, uh, um, shaming others, uh, um, hatred, those things, and then extortion. And again, Paul says, they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Once again, we see that there is a standard. There is that which is directly opposed to Christ. To love the Lord my God with all my heart and my soul and my might is to love what God loves and to hate what God hates, is to align myself with the character of God. And there are any number of of clear lists. I've given you two. There's also one in Romans chapter 1. There's also one in Ephesians. 
there's any number of these lists of things which are in which stand in direct contradiction to the character of God to which we can say these things are what the not doing these things is loving God. But the text goes on and and again I want to make note of this. The text goes on in 1 Corinthians to say something very important. I'm going to go back to verse 9 and I want to read it for you again but to continue to verse 12. The Bible says this. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful, unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now remember, 1 Corinthians is a book of rebuke. Paul writes these words. He is writing to rebuke the church for engaging in actions that would even make the unbelievers around them blush. He's not saying saying here that anyone who sins is an unbeliever. The point is that in Christ they have been cleansed. They are judicially free from the condemnation of those sins. They are not under the judgment of their own sinful choices, as is the world. They are not condemned by the law. And just because they are free doesn't mean they should sin. All things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful, but I will not be brought under the power of any. To follow Christ is to live in purity. To live in a manner that is distinct from the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, from the things that are in the world. To follow Christ is to live in, to, in contradiction to the things which the world is compelled by, which are of the flesh. To follow Christ is to live that way. Now it's time for the important part. In a moment as we get to Galatians. It stands to reckon, however, that if I'm going to avoid these things which are so inherent to my human and sinful nature... If I'm going to, inha- to avoid all of these elements of the flesh, which are so endemic to me as a human, I'm going to have a hard time. How do I find victory over these things? How is it that I live in this purity that I'm called to live in? Is it through just deep discipline, abject denial of my flesh? abject denial of anything that could lead to the flesh or anything that could lead to something that could lead to the flesh. Well, these things have their value. Romans 16 verse 9 tells us that we are called to be simple, ignorant concerning evil and wise to good. 1 Corinthians 10, 20 and 21 says that we are not to have fellowship with devils. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22 calls us to avoid all appearance of evil. But all of this is an outside-in form of living which has its place but will always be wholly insufficient to produce the results which God says we are called to experience in our lives. What God has called us to live, to experience, is an inside-out way of living upon deeper, different, more sure and steadfast principles. As Paul has said, and we've quoted several times within this series, Christ liveth in me, Galatians 2.20. Notice how Paul describes the Christian life in Galatians chapter 5. 
as he relates to the fruit of the Spirit. Very similar to what we talked about this morning in our Sunday school hour. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. We don't rest under the condemnation of the law. We are not left to ourselves simply to discipline ourselves into conformity to some moral system. The believer wholly devotes himself to this reality, echoing what Paul says in Romans 6 about reckoning yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive unto Christ. The believer devotes himself to the reality that there's a better way to live than in the flesh. And then he submits himself wholly to that way. He says, Christ, I'm going to follow you. Christ, I love you. Christ, your way is my way. And then these things come up, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And he says, these are not the things I want. They're what my flesh wants, but they're not what I want. He says, Lord, I love you. I'm going to love you. And as you pursue Christ and as you pursue his love, you will pursue those things which he loves. And as I abide in Christ, living in that moment, fully invested in the power of Christ through the Spirit, I live in the victory that the Spirit of God produces in me. My longing for fellowship, my dread of falling out of fellowship, my dread of the the loss of rewards that I might experience before the throne of judgment one day because I know the God I serve and I know how much I want what He has to offer me. This is the fear of the Lord. Understanding who God is, what He expects, what He can do, and understanding how much I want to stay right with Him. And this leads us to a second commandment. We're called to love God through practical purity, to understand the character of the God that we serve. And this idea is actually the easier of the two. The idea of seeing what God loves and what God hates as it relates to the things in this world and saying, I'm just going to love what God loves and hate what God hates. I'm going to love the Lord my God. I'm going to follow Christ in this way. I'm going to align myself with the principles that, lead, that, that make for success. That's the easier part of the two. Then we have the second concept. Love others as you love yourself. The emphasis upon this in the Word of God is extensive. Going back a little bit in Galatians chapter 5, the Bible says in verses 13 and 14, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It's the same thing that we read in Romans 13, that the law is fulfilled in this thing. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Certainly I won't do this if I don't love God first, right? If you want to conform yourself to Christ, the Bible says pour yourself into loving and serving others. See, this is why This idea, this mindset, and this is really what it is. You know, when it comes to the practical nitty-gritty of what I've preached for the last five weeks, 
Is the person who is devoted to grace and recognize that the law is not their standard, that they are not under the law of Moses, is, is that person and the person who feels entirely compelled to live under the law of Moses, are they going to fundamentally look different on a day-to-day? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. It might not change a thing about what you decide to wear or where you decide to go or whether or not you decide to be here on Sunday or not be here on Sunday. Those things might not change a bit by changing this perspective. But do you know what this perspective will do? What this perspective does primarily, what a grace perspective does is it frees you from the bondage of your own actions. The person who lives under a legal standard spends an awful lot of time thinking about performance. Thinking about what they are doing and not doing. And then looking at others and what others are doing and not doing and assessing themselves by them and assessing them by me and assessing doing. An illustration of this might be a concept that's been coming up more and more today due to the technological revolution. There's a concept floating around called a universal basic income. The idea of the universal basic income is that as people see more and more jobs being taken over by computers, you know, you don't really need anyone standing at McDonald's in, in front taking orders anymore. A person can go up to a computer and order for themselves. We're seeing the internet take over because I would personally much rather get what I want online and have it shipped to my door than have to go to a store and get it. I would personally much rather be able to choose all, be, have all of those options at my disposal and just be able to choose for myself what I want than have somebody else do that for me, than to have to actually interact with a human being. It's a whole lot more convenient to do it on my time and in my way. And so there's this idea starting to crop up, and it's not the first time it's cropped up, about a universal basic income. And the idea there would be that as more and more jobs are, are usurped by technology, the money's coming in, but you don't need to pay anyone because these machines are doing it all and you don't have to pay machines, right? So then we can redistribute and give everyone a certain amount of money simply to live, and what people, and of course the ways that people are, are thinking about doing this have be, been disastrous, there's not a good solution yet. No solution that's been put out there is, has, has been actually very good yet uh, because man needs to work, right? It's, it's inherent in us that we need to. But the philosophy, stick with me here, instead of getting political with this, the philosophy is this. If we have the means by which to allow all of the menial and trivial things in society to be done by machines so that we can be freed up. And then we are just given the resources that we need, and then we are free to thus use our time at our own discretion. That I don't have to be chained to work in order to live anymore because machines and technology have freed me, and now my time, I can go pursue my passions rather than pursuing the direct necessity of, uh, of, of surviving. And this is the, the concept behind a universal basic income. Now, again, in the physical, this seems like it's not going to work for any number of reasons. Number one, redistributionist pro- policies have always just concentrated power with a few, and that's never a good thing. Number two, man has an inherent need to work. And outside of that, he loses meaning and fulfillment. This is built into us by God. And there's any number of other objections. But may I just create a little bit of a link here? When a person transitions from a mindset of just do and don't do to a mindset of grace, it may not look any different 
But what it does is it frees them up from the constant conscience of what am I doing? What am I not doing? What are others doing? What are they doing that I don't agree with? What are they doing that I do agree with? Can I, can I do it with them? Can I not do it with them? And it frees me up from that because that is all solved in this one thing. Follow Christ. If Christ loves it, I love it. If Christ doesn't, I don't. And that's how I go. And, and this frees me in the same way that a universal basic income would free me from the, the dog days of, of, of do and don't do and, and, and earn and, 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 and live to now I have the discretion to do something else with my time. Grace frees me to quit focusing on me and focus on others. It frees me to serve. That's what grace does. It frees me to quit having to spend every moment of every day thinking about what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong and whether or not what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong is going to please or displease God. And I say I'm following Christ by His Spirit. And as I do that, I know what the Word of God says. And it doesn't mean it's not a battle and whatnot. But it frees me to take my eyes off of myself and to put it on others. It opens up discretionary spiritual time that God intends for me to place upon the brethren that God intends for me to place upon my neighbors. You can devote yourself to others rather than being so focused on yourself. That's what grace does. What does it look like? Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself lest thou also be tempted. Bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The third time now we've seen it. We've seen twice, love your neighbor and fulfill the law. We see now bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law. Fulfilling the law of Christ looks like bearing one another's burdens. That if my brother is overtaken in a sin and the implication here is that he is struggling and desiring victory. It's not that he's fallen into sin and he's more than happy to be there. At that point, church discipline is what you need. But when a man is overtaken and he is seeking restoration, he's not glorying in his sinfulness. When a brother is struggling, when he's been overtaken, the spiritual, that meaning those who are still in the spirit, those who have not been overtaken by, by a sin, restore him. And this is not easy work. To love somebody, to hold them accountable, to counsel them, to walk carefully with them, to guide them unto restoration is not easy. To give of my time to them, to pour myself into them. If you've ever poured yourself into a spiritually needy person, you know that you walk away exhausted. Exhausted. You feel like a sponge that has just been wrung dry. They've sucked everything out of you. And, and that's not a bad thing. That's what they need. But if I'm so busy trying my very dead level best just to do and not do, then I'm not going to have time for that person. I'm too busy with myself. And Christ frees me from that so that I can pour myself into them. And it takes work. But this is what, this is what it means to fulfill the law of Christ. In bearing those burdens with them, I fulfill the law of Christ. We talked just briefly in Sunday school about James chapter 2. Verses 14 through 18. What doth it profit, my brethren, James says, though a man say he have faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister, and we've talked about that before, I'm not going to go into the explanation on what that means. We've, we've hit it before. If, you, if you're confused about that, please come see me. 
It doesn't mean faith is not sufficient to get a person to heaven, right? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth the profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Well, show me thy faith without thy works. I will show thee my faith by my works. James says, What profit is your faith if it does not help the brethren? If I see my brother or sister and they have a physical need and I have the means by which to meet that need and I look at them and I say, well, I have faith that the Lord will meet your need. Be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, I don't, I'm not a part of that solution. What, what profit is my faith to me? What good has it done me to say that I have faith? We've been studying 1 John in Sunday school for some time. 1 John 3 re- relates this similar idea. Verses 16 through 18. Hereby perceive we the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. You know, if I am so busy spending all of my time on the do's and the don't do's, if I am so busy binding myself to the burdens of that system of which has been done away in the law of Moses, I'm going to have a very hard time fulfilling the law of Christ. And this is what we see in the New Testament. This is what, when Jesus was interacting with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, this was the problem. They were so busy about the work of keeping all of these commandments that they never took the time to look out among them and to see what needed to be seen and to do what needed to be done for those that were around them. And this is what the mindset difference that we're called unto does for us. This is what grace does for us. It does not necessarily mean that we are going to live by a different set of standards than one who does not recognize this grace. But what it does mean is that we're going to be living it for a very different reason. One of them will be lived, lived bound by these things. It will define the essence of how, of how they perceive themselves in relationship to others. And the other one will be freed to say that is in Christ. Yes, I'm doing these things because I'm following Christ and, and, and will be freed thus to look around him and to see what needs can be met to love the brethren. So, we come back to Romans 12. We were in Romans 13 earlier. Paul says this, Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Now things are getting serious. What does it look like to follow Christ? What does an active relationship with Christ look like? 
if I can give you a word, it's selflessness. Selflessness. It's when I am deciding what I'm going to do with my day, the first thing is, will it please God? The second thing is, is it loving my neighbor? And that, that, that is the standard. That's, that's every action. It shuns my interest for the sake of others. It pours myself into others. It's unhypocritical love. It's kind affection one toward another. It is doing what I do with fervor and zeal in the name of the Lord. It is rejoicing in my expectation of that which heaven will bring me one day as I am patient in the midst of the tribulations of today. It is living prayerfully. It is looking about me to meet the needs of the saints. It is being wholly hospitable to others. It is blessing those who persecute me. Not just ignoring them, but blessing them. Not just saying sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But looking at them and saying, God bless you. It is about humility. It is about love. Is this what your Christian life looks like? We spend so much time contending with ourselves over whether or not we or someone is doing something that we agree with or don't like. We spend so much time fighting with ourselves, frustrated with ourselves. We talked this morning in in Sunday school about that false sense of guilt and shame that we can place ourselves under because we feel as though if we don't live under that, then somehow we don't care. And do you know what you're doing while you're taking the things that you're struggling with and imposing upon yourself guilt and shame and condemnation, which Jesus Christ already paid for on the cross? You're wasting your time. You're wasting the time that ought to be given to someone or something. There is a kingdom that Christ is building, and one day we're going to be in it. But there's a lot of work to do before we get there. And all of that time that we spend with the, 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 the do's and the don'ts in that sense, in a legal sense, in a judgmental sense. And again, I started the sermon by making it very clear that this is not license, right? We walked through 1 Corinthians. We walked through Galatians. We saw those things. You cannot love God if you're not walking in practical purity, But that's following Christ, loving God, doing that because that's what God loves, loving what God loves, hating what God hates. Okay, that's done. Now get busy. Set yourself aside and serve others. And when you do that, you're fulfilling the law. That is fulfilling the law. If we're spending all of our time contending either with ourselves or with others about the nitty-gritty of what we're doing and not doing while leaving Romans 12 undone, there's something wrong. Again, I'm not saying those things are not worthy of our time. Jesus said the same thing to the Pharisees, Matthew 23, verses 23 and 24. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the others undone. Ye blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. 
Jesus did not say your tithing of your mint and your anise and your cumin, that's a bad thing. Stop that. Stop that tithe. Stop that, stop that, 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 that obeying of, the, of, of the, that principle as it relates to the law of tithing of what you have to God. He didn't say stop that. He said you should be doing that. But not at the expense of the weightier matters of the law. Don't swallow camels whole while simultaneously straining at gnats. Let us be mindful that we don't fall into this mindset. The liberty of Christ compels us not unto a heavy burden, but unto a different mode of living. We cease from our own works and we live unto God. That's what we talked about two weeks ago. We fundamentally change the way we think, the, way, the things we want, the things we do, not because if I don't, lightning will strike me, not as, a, as resting under a burden, but because I want to follow Christ and that's the way Christ is going and I have those rewards that are promised me in heaven and I have been redeemed and I'm going to, I'm not going to turn back to those weak and beggarly elements. I'm not going to turn back to those sins of which I'm now ashamed. Instead, I am going to forge ahead and serve others. And this takes humility. Tremendous humility. This takes submission because if you try to do this on your own, you will fail. You can't do this. Only God can do this in you. This is what separates us from the other religious systems. As I mentioned several weeks ago, you could put a Mormon, Latter-day Saint, you could put an Orthodox Jew, you could put a Jehovah's Witness, you could put a member of Legacy Baptist Church, one right next to another. And not only might there not be all that much difference, but with many of us, they would be the more conservative among us, as far as legally speaking. It is not those things that distinguish those three systems, all of which do not regard Jesus as the, the, the Son of God who did what he said he did, all of those who are not in the, under the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we who are, all of those who have not the Spirit of God, and we who do, that is not the primary difference between us. The primary difference between us is the fruit of the Spirit of God in us. The primary difference is inside out versus outside in. The primary difference are these things that we're talking about here. And when we understand that there's something different about being a Christian, that the Spirit of God is not impotent within us. It is not just that those three are not going to heaven and I am. That's not just it. It's not just a ticket to heaven. It is the power of a changed life. It is the fact that they are doing what they are doing because they are trying desperately in guilt and in shame to earn their way to something and I'm doing what I'm doing because I've been freed. And now I'm free to do something more with it. To love my neighbor as myself. To avenge not myself. To live in this different, more powerful way. Manner of living. The moralizer spends his life disciplining his flesh into aligning with a moral code. The believer spends his life walking in the power of Christ, living in the fruit of the Spirit unto newness of life. The moralizer disciplines his flesh. The believer's heart is changed. His desires are changed. 
He lives from the inside out, not the outside in. It doesn't matter how moral you act. If you hate your brother in your heart, you're a murderer. If you lust after a woman in your heart, you're an adulterer. The power of God is not just the power to be moral, to act moral. The power of God is not just a home in heaven. The power of God is the power of newness of life. It's an internal compulsion unto selfless love, unto yieldedness to the brethren, unto a love for those that hate me, that would make themselves my enemies. But even more than that is a personal relationship with your creator. We sang it this morning. Jesus is all the world to me. The final phrase, he's my friend. It's very different. It's very, very different. He's my friend. I am acceptable to him in Christ. Freedom from guilt. Personal relationship with your creator. Peace within your heart. And those of you who were here when we watched that video clip several Tuesdays ago about that man who wanted to live like he was a Christian but could not bring himself to believe. You understand what morality without peace looks like. It's very clear in that clip. On the contrary, we live in this blessedness of the liberty from sin and of guilt and of shame and of condemnation, the very thing which drives moralizers, the very thing which compels them to fall in line is the very thing from which we are free. The moralizer is bound to guilt. I'm bound to Christ. The moralizer is constrained to works. I'm constrained to love. I'm free not to pursue the flesh. That's unbiblical. That's not sound doctrine. Galatians chapter 5 says it plainly. Free instead to divert my attention to loving one another, to change the distribution of my resources so that my, my resources, my spiritual resources are spent on others rather than on myself. So Galatians 5.13 says, Brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty as an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. All right? And if you're not experiencing this in your Christian life, you're missing out on the full blessedness into which you have been purchased. You are missing out. Oh, no, I'm not missing out. I get to do whatever I want. No, you are missing out. <laughs> you, are, you are deeply missing out. You won't know it till you're there, but you, you are. This is the balance of purity and faith. Back to Romans 12. Things get even trickier. Verse 17. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink, for in doing so thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. I'm liberated from my own guilt. I'm liberated from my own fears. I'm liberated from my own shame. And then I look around at me, and I begin to serve the brethren. But it's not just the brethren that I'm to love. It's not just those who agree with me that I'm to love. See, it's very easy for anyone to love those that love them. It's really not that hard. But this very same principle compels me unto loving those that have made themselves my enemies. I look around me at them and my anger and my hatred, my loathing of their actions and their intentions 
The love abroad is shed a Christ in my heart, and instead of these feelings, I feel compassion. The deepest compulsion to see them experience the thing that I'm experiencing. See, because I didn't get where I am by moralizing myself. I got to where I am. I have been freed from this by the love of Christ. And so I see these people, and they hate me. And I see these people, and they are seeking, above all else, to make me angry or to hurt me or to put me down or to marginalize me. And I understand, see, because I was there too. And I know that the thing that rescued me from that was not my own self-reform, but it was Christ. And so I am welled with compassion that they would experience what I've experienced in Christ. I want them to receive what I have received. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, the Lord said. God, they're deceived by sin. They're driven by the flesh. They seek only for the things of this life, things which cannot profit, things which have no eternal value. There is so much more to this life than what they are experiencing. God, grant that they might come to experience it themselves. God, grant that those who have made themselves my enemies might be saved. God, grant that I might show them the love of Christ that can transform them in the way it's transformed me. This is the freedom in which I live, not bound by the anger and the frustration and the hate of the actions of, of others against me or toward me, but freed rather to love unconditionally. There's one more layer that we need to add, and we'll do that next week as we talk about the weaker brethren principle. Things are going to get even deeper next week we're going to take you to to the next level of loving your neighbor a level um, which which will keep you busy for a long time but for today we need to apply three points point number one understand your spiritual liberty inevitably compels you unto purity understand this your spiritual liberty, if, you, if, your, if, if your understanding of your spiritual liberty does not compel you under purity, you don't understand your spiritual liberty properly. There's no context within which spiritual liberty can be used legitimately to validate sinful choices. We're going to have disagreements with it among us about what actions are righteous before God. We'll talk about that again next week. When it comes to those lists we read in Galatians and 1 Corinthians, which we didn't read, but which exist in Romans chapter 1 and in Ephesians, uh, those things, there's no context within which those things on those lists can be done by a believer in faith and righteousness. And this we know on the authority of God's word. If something is compelling you unto those things, I can tell you right now it is not God. If something is seeking to justify those things in your life, I can tell you right now it is not God. But take note of this. If you rest in your spiritual liberty, if you use your liberty properly, you will find purity. You will be purified because it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. If you truly walk the road of grace, you will find the end of that road to be holiness. We all have this fear that if we preach grace as I've preached it over the last, maybe not, let me not put intentions in your mind. I've always had this fear. That if I preach grace, true grace, the grace that I've presented over the last five weeks, that people will see it as license to sin. And I know other pastors have this because it's a, it's a big reason why pastors don't preach this stuff. Because they're afraid that if they say this stuff, that the young people among us are going to say, oh good, I can sin now. And it's possible. 
Oh good, I can live like the world now. As a matter of fact, uh, the vast number of churches that are around us, of the 18 churches in Buffalo, will point to principles like what I'm preaching to validate their worldliness. Pastor, if we free a man's conscience from guilt, won't he inevitably abuse that freedom? Well, if he does, it's not because of grace. That's not biblical. Those who abuse grace do so not because grace fails, but because they were looking for an excuse to sin. I'm not here to give you an excuse to sin. The Bible does not give you an excuse to sin. If you look at grace and you perceive grace as an excuse to sin, you've missed it. These churches, these people, these Christians, or Christians so-called, however it works, that abuse grace, that live like the world, that act like the world, that suffer under the same struggles as the world, they preach grace as license, and so they suffer under the weight of their own weak and incapable flesh. They deceive themselves. They find no power. They find no joy. That's not grace. See, they live like the world, and they call it grace, and then they say grace is supposed to free you up to joy, and then they wonder why they're not finding joy. It's because they're not actually living in grace. They're living in sin. And then they seek to conjure up that joy through roller coaster Christianity. They go to the concert or they go to the, the conference and they get their, their boost, right? They get their shot in the arm and they feel really good for a while because they've just been to a self-help conference. And then it tanks them back when they start living back under their license again, when they, when they start abusing grace again. And so they live like this. And so they're suffering with the same issues, the same emotional issues, uh, the, the same spiritual issues, the same problems as the world around them. And, and little wonder, because they're conforming to the world around them. If you conform to the world, you're going to have the same problems as the world. You say, well, then grace isn't working. No, no, grace works just fine. You're just not living in it. You just missed it. You're living in license rather than in liberty. God forbid, however, God forbid that my fear that someone in this room is going to abuse grace should cause me to preach upon them a burden which the word of God has not placed on them. If you've listened to these messages on the law and it has led you to the conclusion that you can sin with impunity, as I've mentioned, you've missed the point. But God forbid that our fear of someone abusing grace should cause us to deny it. In my opinion, it's one of the primary reasons why young people struggle, why our conservative churches are seeing such an exodus today. It's my opinion. God forbid that my fear of what could happen would keep me from living in the spiritual liberty that frees me from the compulsions of guilt and shame and liberates me to love God and to serve Him in absolute joy. A joy which urges me not just to live into purity, but to long for purity, to fight for purity. If you have experienced life in grace, then you know what it is to long for the purity of Christ. You know what it is to take all of the things that are, do that are happening in your life, the, the, the things that you're doing, the ways that you're doing them, and to be evaluating them to say, what could be closer to Christ because I love him? You know what that is if you've lived in grace. And this leads us to our second point. Understand, first, your spiritual liberty inevitably compels you unto purity. Second, understand your spiritual liberty inevitably compels you 
unto service. When I'm freed from the burden of shame and guilt, when I'm freed from the weight of constantly looking at and evaluating myself against some legal standard, I'm free to turn my eyes to others. Shame and guilt are valid motivators, but they're very poor motivators. They can never, never fulfill the purpose of, of Christ as they're designed to be fulfilled. When I, instead, I'm following Christ. I'm lifted up to joy. I'm compelled by this liberty to pour myself into the lives of my brethren, to pour myself, my joy, into compassion for the unbeliever. My mind is turned outward rather than inward, seeking desperately to give as Christ gave, to serve as Christ served. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good to by any means be made conformable to the death of Christ. I am constrained by the love of Christ as it turns my mind and my heart away from the things of this world and away from myself as a whole, away from the material, away from the temporal and toward the things of the world to come. Spiritual liberty will not allow me to simply rest with the fact that I've been saved. Spiritual liberty by its nature compels me to others. Because if I'm following Christ, I'm going where he went. And where did Christ go? He went to sinners. He went to people. Christ washed his disciples' feet and told his disciples to do the same. Christ went to the lost sheep and told his followers to spread that news throughout the whole world. Christ sat with publicans and sinners because it's not the righteous that need these things, it's the unrighteous. So he went to those that knew they were unrighteous. Now everyone was unrighteous, right? But he went to the ones that knew it, the ones that were ready to receive it. When I understand the liberty into which I have been born again, this is where it will inevitably drive me. Final point. First point, understand that your spiritual liberty inevitably compels you unto purity. Second, understand your spiritual liberty inevitably compels you unto service. Third and finally, understand your spiritual liberty inevitably compels you unto compassion. There is no place for hate in the realm of spiritual liberty. There is no place for pride in the realm of spiritual liberty. Does that mean you're not going to feel hate or pride? No, it doesn't. It just means that at that point, you have fallen under, the, you, you, you followed the flesh rather than the spirit. The spirit is what frees us. The spirit is where liberty is found. I know that all of this is what I've received. I may not, uh, I may have always been a, a moral person. I may have always done good things, but only when I was ushered into Christ did my shame and my guilt and my condemnation get replaced with joy and peace within my heart. That's something that no amount of works can produce. Something that no amount of moral living can produce. And when I have it, and I see others that don't, even if they are <laughs> treating me horribly, if I'm looking through the eyes of faith, I see their desperate attempts for attention, their attempts to fill the gaping void in their heart with all manner of things that simply cannot satisfy them, men and women devoting themselves to the doctrines of devils, people driven to find satisfaction in money, in identity, in movements, in sexual impurity, to fill in the gaps. I don't hate them for that. I'm not angry with them for that. I weep for them. 
because they're walking as sheep without a shepherd. Because they don't understand that all of their feeble attempts to fill the void with something is, is not working because it's not the right thing. And if they could only find the right thing, they would finally have the satisfaction to which they are desperately, desperately grasping in all of these other things that will never satisfy. They are a sheep without a shepherd. And you understand their longing because you once felt it too. And you desire that they might just find the peace that you found if only they would hear. And this is the law of Christ. This is why Christ died. This is what Christianity is about. This is what separates us from others. This is what Christ has called us to do. And it isn't all. As I said, next week we'll talk about the next level. But for this week, how are you doing? I'm not seeking, nor have I sought from the beginning, to try to tear you away from the standards that you appreciate in your life. I'm not seeking to tear you away from your appreciation for the Old Testament. Goodness, I, I, I'm always in the Old Testament, right? Always in the New Testament and the Old Testament. We're just swapping between morning and evening. I love the Old Testament. My favorite book of the Bible is in the Old Testament. It's Deuteronomy, strangely enough. And yet, what we're doing here is seeking to make a mindset shift into grace that helps you understand your relationship to the things of this world, to yourself, to your actions, to the actions of others, and to Christ. To free you from the weight and the burden, what Paul often would call the death that is inherent in the law. To draw you nigh unto Christ, something the law cannot do by Paul's testimony. To draw you near to him so that you can and you will love God with all your heart and with that comes purity and love your neighbor as yourself. Is this your experience? Is this what you're doing? Is this what your Christian life looks like? Or are you out of balance? Have you been straining at gnats while swallowing camels? Have you inverted the things which truly matter and become imbalanced? Are you, perhaps do you understand the liberty, but you're still not living in it? You have seen that liberty to some degree as, a, as an occasion to the flesh rather than uh, your liberty freeing you to serve one another. Has your freedom in Christ turned you inward rather than outward? That's an easy thing to, to cause to happen to allow it to happen, where you just get so caught up in, in, in living your, your life in Christ that you forget to look outward. How are you doing? How's your life under grace? Are you living in the purity that your spiritual life, that your spiritual liberty has purchased? Or have you been using grace as some excuse unto something that will not profit? Are you living in the service that your spiritual life has purchased? Serving your brethren? Yielding yourself to them? It takes a lot of humility. Even more so, compassion. Are you living in the compassion your spiritual liberty has purchased? Looking out at those, maybe even who hate you, and loving them, not because you want to, in the purest sense of the word, that's not what your flesh would want, 
but because you love Christ so much and Christ's blood was shed for them. And you know that the, the pain and the sorrow, that the anger, that, the fresh, that all of those things that are in them don't have to be. If only they would find that liberty too. This is the law of Christ. This is the end of the law for all who believe. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.